1: We're coming to you live at 2 o'clock this afternoon for a special edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. We wanted to be here with you uh, for the live show because uh, there are developments happening here in Georgia in terms of the election returns, as well as in Washington, D.C., where uh, Congress is uh, going through what is supposed to be a pro forma a uh, ritual of uh, ratifying the electoral college votes. It has not turned out that way. We knew that a, a while ago. Now uh, that there were going to be objections, we're going to talk about that in a little while. And and I think is because of that uh, what's going on in Washington, and also the history that was made here in Georgia, where uh, Georgia has now elected the first African American. Uh, member of the U.S. Senate from this state and the first black Democrat uh, in the South in electing Raphael Warnock, uh, John Ossoff, uh, who is um, uh, Jewish, would become, I believe, I'd have to go back to Reconstruction to be sure of this, but I think very likely the first Jewish uh, senator who appears to be on the road to uh, being elected, uh, to the uh, Senate as well. So all of that is historic uh, uh, history. It is it is fodder for history. At the same time, we are now watching uh, in Washington mobs of people, protesters, pro-Trump protesters, who are attacking the barricades that have been set up at the U.S. Capitol. They are clashing with Capitol police, and I assume other. Uh, law enforcement from other branches uh, who are trying to fend them off. The Capitol, some uh, sections of the Capitol are being evacuated. Uh, So on one hand, it's a day when many people are celebrating here in Georgia, and on the other hand, uh, an an awful scene unfolding in Washington, D.C. We're going to get to all of that on the show today with a great panel. I should start by saying, Greg Bluestein's not here. It's Tamar Hallerman. Uh, I'm very happy that the senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is with us this afternoon. Uh, tomorrow, I apologize uh, for uh, that misinformation that I put out at the top of the show, but I am glad you're here, especially since you've been like locked to your desk for like the past 13, 14 hours writing about the Georgia election, right?
2: Yeah, I, I was live blogging election results and analysis from about. 4 p.m. yesterday until about 3:30 a.m. So it was definitely a long night and so much to catch up on this morning but an amazing historic day um, no matter what way you look at it.
1: Yeah pretty remarkable and I do appreciate after the long hours you've been putting in that you would be with us. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, we're also joined today by Riley Bunch State House reporter for CNHI news. Hi Riley how are you were you up all night covering this thing?
3: I don't think there were any local journalists that weren't up all night. You know, it's something that we've been covering for the better part of the year. And you, you want to lay down for that 30-minute nap, that hour nap, but you just can't. You just can't look away from what's going on right
1: now. <laughs> well, thank you, too, for being here. Uh, Dr. Amy Steigerwalt, political science professor from Georgia State University. We're always glad when you're with us. Hi, Amy.
0: Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me.
1: And you're joined by Dr. Fred Smith, Professor of Constitutional Law at Emory University. Uh, Fred, we're uh, expecting you to untangle all of this that's going on right now in Washington and around the Electoral College uh, ritual that has devolved into something much different. How are you?
4: Uh, I am great, <laughs> despite the, uh, the goings on in Washington right now. Um, Hopefully, we'll look back at it as a a moment not to emulate. Um, But uh, but yesterday was certainly a historic day, and it's a great day to be a day.
1: I should point out that one of the things that certainly whipped the crowd up in Washington right now is President Trump spoke to them on the Ellipse, just behind the White House, and uh, told them it was a fraudulent election. Uh, He, by the way, called Governor Kemp the dumbest governor in America during his uh, long, long speech. Uh, We're not going to play any of it uh, for you because I think everybody's heard all they want to hear from President Trump at this point. He's going to be out of office in two weeks. And uh, so... If you want to hear the president, you'll have to find him somewhere else. Let's go right to the Senate race, and let's start, if we can, let me just give you the latest on the Ossoff-Purdue race, because that race still has not been called. There are still, last I looked, maybe, I don't know if you know this tomorrow, someone 40,000 plus votes still out in Georgia. Most of them are in Democratic uh, strongholds, so... We expect Asif will only build his lead. Right now, he appears to be ahead by about ninety-five oh five, about thirteen fourteen thousand votes, which is tomorrow bigger than the number of votes by which Joe Biden won the state of Georgia, coincidentally.
2: Yeah, definitely, and we've seen not only. Ossoff declare victory, but we've also seen a a slew of Democratic leaders circle their wagons around him. Um, We saw President-elect Joe Biden call to congratulate uh, him. We saw Barack Obama put out a statement congratulating Warnock and Ossoff as well. So I think Democrats are certainly ready to move on. But but David Perdue's camp uh, emailed a statement out to the the press at about 2 a.m. last night, promising that they are going to be very litigious. Uh, over this next little bit. And it's going to be interesting to see if at the end of the day, Asaf is going to be able to pull ahead by more than half of a percentage point, because that's the automatic recount territory that we're going to be looking for. And if he doesn't, this could take days or weeks to resolve itself.
1: Yeah, uh, Amy, there is very little reason to think that Asaf will not eventually, whether it's uh, after a recount, after litigation, Uh, be seated in the U.S. Senate, right? I mean, the votes are definitely there for him at this point to win the race.
0: Yes. So I think it's important to note that sort of the largest trash of votes are coming out of DeKalb still. So there's Mm -hmm. about 5% of the votes that are left out of DeKalb County. But if you think about the fact that they have well over half a million votes, Right. Five percent is a lot. And they've been going about 85 percent for John Ossoff. So all of that is just simply going to add there's almost no votes left in um, Republican uh, heavy counties. And so in that way, like it's going to start to really inch up and I'll probably get over that um, recount threshold where David Perdue could ask for a recount. Um,
1: Okay, you think it will be more than a, a, a half a percentage point victory for Ossoff, huh?
0: I, when all of the votes are in, I do. I, I think it probably is good. That, that's what the numbers look like, is that it's probably going to be 0. .5, .6 uh, when all is said and done. Um, you know, he has run a little bit behind. <laughs> Uh, the amount, the number of votes that Raphael Warnock received. So Raphael Warnock is winning by, I think, about 1.3 percent. Um, and so there was a little bit of a difference there. But um, at the moment, given, given where the votes are that are left and how heavily they are going for John Ossoff in the areas where they are left, most likely it's going to pull into that up, up to about
2: 0.6. And that's a dynamic I really want to talk about, Amy, because – it, it mm-hmm. does seem like there was a notable number of voters who potentially split their ticket between David Perdue and Raphael Warnock, either that or mm-hmm. they voted for Warnock and, and didn't vote for Perdue. But when you look at, at the differences, um, you know, the, that Warnock got over And that Purdue got over That they Mm. they pretty much mirror each other, about 18,000 votes difference. And I am dying to know who these voters are and and kind of what motivated them. So if if you guys know anybody on air, reach out to me because I'm dying to, to hear about that.
1: Riley, I'll bring in you into this, but let me just tell you that this morning uh, on the show, uh, Andra Gillespie uh, talked about this. And, in fact, she went looking very specifically at counties and precincts across the mm-hmm. state to see if she could figure this out. And, of course, the first place she looked, Riley, was Chatham County, which is Raphael Warnock's home, where you might expect he would uh, outdraw mm-hmm. Uh, John Ossoff, but she said it wasn't. She said it really looked like it was just sporadic across the state, and she couldn't find a pattern. Although she acknowledges there may be one developing as you look deeper in it. Riley,
3: you know, I really think that the, everyone there is noting have their certain reasons why they're not backing one candidate that's part of a party mm-hmm. ticket. You know, backing Ossoff or not backing Warnock, vice versa. Um, I think a lot of Republicans really have taken to heart what um, the the Trump has been saying over the last years. But there are still some Democrats in rural areas that are not as comfortable with John Ossoff. So since, you know, Dr. Gillespie said it was so sporadic, I really do think it's down to, you know, individual opinions here.
1: Um, let, let's do this. And, and let me bring Fred in. Uh, but Fred, before I do, let's play. John Ossoff, at 8 o'clock this morning, made a statement. His campaign had crunched the numbers. They looked at where the votes were outstanding. They decided there was very little way that they could lose this race. Let's just listen to a little bit of what Ossoff said at 8 this morning, uh, declaring himself to be the victor, although the race has not to this moment been called.
5: This campaign has been about health
0: and jobs and justice for the people of this state, for all the people of this state. And they will be my guiding principles as I serve this state in the U.S. Senate, ensuring that every Georgian has great health care, no matter our wealth, ensuring that we invest in an economic recovery that includes all communities, that rebuilds our state's infrastructure, that lays the foundations for prosperity in rural Georgia, suburban communities and urban communities alike, and securing equal justice for all Following in the footsteps of leaders who have departed us in this last year, like Congressman John Lewis and C.T.
5: Vivian.
1: Fred, I picked that section of what Asof said this morning. He talked for about five and a half minutes because I think it's emblematic of the difference between the way uh, Leffler and Purdue ran their race and the way uh, Asof and Warnock ran theirs, and apparently voters approved of the latter. Ossoff actually talked, as did Raphael Warnock, about issues, about what they wanted to accomplish in, uh, if they were elected to the Senate, whereas we know that the Republican campaign um, was primarily a negative campaign uh, attacking the Democrats for being radical uh, socialists. Fred?
4: Sure. Right. So, I mean, I can tell you what the theme was for Reverend Warnock and what the theme was for John Ossoff, which happened to be the same theme, uh, which was jobs, health and justice. <laughs> I could articulate it because they did. Uh, and that's an affirmative message uh, and one that I think uh, kind of resonates with a lot of voters across the state um, and appeals to a, a broad range of constituencies uh, as the nation recovers from this pandemic, uh, as people are suffering economically. Um, and as we uh, continue to heal and uh, uh, engage in racial healing um, and in the aftermath of, uh, of the events of this past summer. Um, and so, yeah, it's an affirmative message. Uh, whereas on the other side, um, you know, when I think about Kelly Leffler and I think about her messages, the first words that come to my mind are radical liberal, <laughs> radical liberal Raphael Warnock. That was her theme, right? Um, and at some point, that started to become uh, David Perdue's theme, even though he wasn't even running against uh, uh, Raphael Warnock. Um, and so, no, there, there was a, a significant difference in the messages. Uh, and often, uh, hope prevails over fear, and to, this appears to have been no exception to that. Amy?
0: Um, I do think one thing that is important is to remember that in many ways, David Perdue, right, it's sort of not surprising that he would do a little bit better in the runoff, given that he almost won the last time, right? It was only because he got barely under that 50 percent plus one threshold that this even went to a runoff. Um, And so in many ways, there was ground that had to be uh, made up. And he going into that race and going into the runoff also had uh, one of the highest statewide approval ratings in the state, six years, right, of incumbency advantage, in particular, right, helping people do things that they needed help with, right, calling his community, all of that. And so it's sort of not surprising that we might see that in a little bit of drop-off there. Um, We also knew that there was some number, for example, of Biden-Purdue voters in November, right? So I think one real question was going to be for that group, what did they do? How did they um, react to this. And I do think that even though um, Purdue and Leffler ran together, that Leffler, I think, definitely seemed more the face of the. Um, total fealty to president trump certainly she was uh running more divisive ads ones that had very prominent sort of racial overtones and attacks for example on the black church and it may be that people were also able to kind of separate those two out and like that was a sort of a step too far to vote for her even if they were still able to vote for purdue
1: um let me interrupt uh just for a minute uh because we're following two stories at once. We're following the outcome of our two Senate races here, waiting to see what happens with us. while we're watching Washington. And, um, Amelia just sent me a tweet that came from someone who is in the Capitol right now, who says, and has a photograph of it. Protesters have now breached the United States Capitol tomorrow. You know, this building, well, they are outside the Senate chamber. Now from the photograph, We can't see how many there are, but the fact that protesters are now in the U.S. Capitol at the doors of the Senate is a staggering notion that suddenly makes us feel like we're living in a dystopian nightmare.
2: Yeah, it's it's a really staggering thought. And remember, this is a building that's crawling with Capitol Police. Every major entrance has a has a man with a machine gun in it. And I, I realize that they're they're not going to ever want to use those machine guns, but it, it puts them in a really perilous place. And especially um, someone like Mitch McConnell, who only about an hour ago took a pretty amazing stand on the on the Senate floor, where he finally said, you know, this is enough. If we Object to these electoral college uh, certification votes, democracy will quote enter a death spiral. And so this is a tough moment for him, right? He's he's made a gamble over the last four years and really stuck by President Trump's side. But but we've seen him in the last couple of days start to kind of pivot and turn to what life is going to look like under a Joe Biden administration. Uh, but at the same time, you're not going to want to beat up these these you know, Trump protesters. So, so what do you do? But that's a terrifying thought. I've worked on the Hill for almost 10 years and, and nothing like that has ever happened.
1: Um, all right. I, again, let me park that for just a little while. Believe me, we're going to get to spend plenty of time talking about what's happening in Washington right now. But, but if I may, let's turn back to the uh, historic Senate race that we've just uh, seen unfold in uh, Georgia. Fred, from the very start of this runoff, starting on november 4th we have all agreed that this race is entirely was about turnout it was not about converting people to your side it was a turnout election and with that in mind it's rather clear that democrats did a much better job turning out their voters than did republicans and one example of that uh fred and then amy i want you to get in on this too um But lost on November 3rd to uh, Purdue by some 85 or so thousand votes. And yet, here he is, 14,000-some votes ahead of him right now. Fred, Amy, and then Riley, you should all weigh in on this.
4: Sure. No, absolutely. Uh, This was a turnout election for both rounds. Uh, And in the initial round, uh, I'd say that both sides, it's hard, it's hard not to say that both sides. Uh, turned out uh, their bases, and uh, and then some. Right, there are about a million more voters than there were uh, just two years ago uh, in uh, in that highly watched race, or or four, four years ago uh, in the uh, in the Clinton race, um, the, the Clinton versus Trump race. Um, This time, uh, you kind of had a slightly different dynamic where both sides did for a runoff (laughs) uh, a a fairly uh, phenomenal job in terms of turnout. It's just that one side did uh, a better job in terms of turnout. Um, And uh, in particular, in the metro and it appears in southwest Georgia, uh, the Democrats did a particularly uh, strong job in terms of um, uh, of, of turning out um, their voters. Um, and in the end of the day, yes, that absolutely made a difference. It's also hard not to say that some of the president's actions over the past month didn't play something of a role in that. Uh, just real one quick stat. I mean, uh, in terms of in-person voting, Asif won the in-person early vote by 25,000 votes. He lost it in November by 200,000 votes. Uh, And so that starts to suggest that there was something different uh, really about the early voting in particular.
0: Definitely. So the turnout efforts for this were phenomenal. I mean, going into this, one of the things that we knew is that for the past two decades that the Republicans had um, an extremely robust runoff turnout mobilization effort already in place and one of the big questions was going to be could the democrats really sort of recreate during the runoff what we saw during the november election especially because they had brought a lot of new voters into the fold and the answer was yes so you know some of the really important numbers that came out of this is for example there were over a hundred thousand new voters that voted in the runoff that did not in fact vote in Uh, the November elections. What we also saw were, I mean, sort of high turnout really across the state. This is one of the highest turnouts that we've seen in a runoff really ever, Um, but it did um, disproportionately occur in counties that were those that voted more heavily for Biden, turnout was much higher than those that uh, voted for Trump by about 5%. um, In counties that have larger uh, black populations, much higher. Uh, Those where at least 50 percent of the county uh, has a college degree, much higher. Some of the lowest turnout, uh, relatively speaking, was in those where you had a lower proportion of people who had college degrees. Rural areas had lower turnout as compared to the urban and suburban. And so it was really all of these areas where on some level we don't normally see the same type of consistent turnout, where turnout was highest. And in almost all of the races in all of the counties, I mean, uh, both uh, or- Ossoff ran, as um, Fred was saying, ahead of how he did in November. And both Warnock and Ossoff did better. They improved upon the margin of victory that Biden had in most of these counties, whereas uh, Leffler and Purdue did not necessarily improve uh, on how it is that President Trump did in November.
1: Riley, your CNHI uh, is a group that you you report for, which has newspapers in uh, outlying uh, areas of the state. Uh, What can you tell us about what your uh, readers were saying about this election going in or what you saw from the areas that uh, you represent?
3: Yeah, I think that I want to reiterate a number that Amy threw out there, the 100,000 new voters um, that took part in this election. That is huge. Um, I think Gabriel Sterling the secretary of state's office said, you know, those probably are Democratic votes because um, he said something along the lines of this quote, he, the Republicans spent more time, you know, slamming Governor Kemp and Raffensperger than they did mobilizing in the way that those Democrats really did. But I think another important thing to highlight in this election and something that the whole country, you know, is finally recognizing now after the general is the importance of the rural black vote. Um, the Democrats spent time after the general election traveling the state. I know so many rural Democrats that were so excited to see John Ossoff in the South, see Reverend lafayette in the West. You know, they were really excited. And also the, the success of their, their dual ticket. You know, it, it was their pair campaign ran a lot better than the Republicans did, largely in part because Purdue was so quiet. But it really increased turnout in rural areas.
1: Um, All right, let's do this. Let's get to our first break of the show, and we will come back with more on Political Rewind.
4: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon.
1: Riley Bunch, Tamar Hallerman, Fred Smith, and Amy Steigerwald are with me. Um, So, panelists, I, I really was hoping we could talk maybe about Washington a little bit later in the show because there's still an awful lot to unpack on the Senate race. but it, right now we have to keep giving you updated news um, because it's it's um, un- incredibly distressing. Um, according to uh, news sources, the Senate has entered into a recess. They were there. Uh, debating the first objection to uh, the Electoral College uh, uh, result in Arizona. Arizona was the third state on the roll call. Um, uh, Alabama, Alaska, the, uh, the the electors were a- approved uh, by the bodies, the Senate and the House, in joint session. Arizona came up, and as we expected, there was an objection to accepting the electoral votes from Arizona. And the two bodies, the Senate and the House, are required then to go back into individual sessions, debate for up to two hours why they should or should not accept the uh, electors uh, from Arizona. And we're going to see this happen all day uh, in at least a few other states. And um, at the same time, President Trump at a rally at the Ellipse, after encouraging people for days to show up in Washington to protest this fraudulent election, talked for more than an hour, whipping people up about about a stolen election. And now, now, crowds have broken through, are in the U.S. Capitol. The Senate has entered into a recess, and the Capitol police have locked down the building. Vice President Pence has left the Senate chamber, And apparently there are reports that protesters went through a glass door somewhere in the Capitol. And Fred Smith, I don't know how we cannot spend at least a couple minutes talking about this is what President Trump has wrought. There is simply no other way to say it. It would be nice to try to somehow show balance here. Oh no, the president doesn't encourage this sort of behavior, but this is his doing. No, it absolutely
4: is, right? Uh, you know, I wanted to. I wanted to try to show being optimistic, and already 30 minutes in. Um, yeah,
1: exactly. I'm, I'm the, the same way.
4: Back, um, you know, and I, you know, the president just tweeted. Uh, yet another tweet, while this is taking place, um, taking on Vice President uh, Pence, who is now in Secret Service protection. He's tweeting this while that's act- while the Vice President um, is uh, in Secret Service protection. There's absolutely nothing normal about this. Um, and uh, more and more people need to do – and I never thought I'd say these words. <laughs> But more and more people need to do and say and speak the way um, that uh, that the Senate Majority Leader, soon to be Senate Minority Leader, did today, um, in terms of uh, condemning this in the strongest possible terms. Um, and you know, this is not there. There is no. We, we stop with the whataboutisms and the false equivalents. Um, and uh, you know, this it's looking this this looks. If this were happening in any other country, we would call this an attempted coup. That's the language we would use, um, and you know, that's 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 those are big words, and uh, we want to be cautious about using them. But if I saw it happening anywhere else, those are the words I would use. Um, and so, we, yeah, so so uh, so so yeah. So I mean, actually, <laughs> actually, I will let you interview because I have nothing to say that's hopeful right now about this, these particular acts.
1: Well, I do think that here's something hopeful. Um, You mentioned uh, the uh, uh, words of Mitch McConnell. Amelia Brock has spent some time going through them, and she pulled a clip that we should play for you right now so you can hear. Here's what happened. So Arizona got an an objection. They went back to their separate chambers. McConnell uh, wanted to be the first one to speak in the first objection He got that uh, uh, right, of course, as the majority leader for the time being. And here's a little bit of what he said.
5: Every election we know features some illegality and irregularity. And, of course, that's unacceptable. I support strong state-led voting reforms. Last year's bizarre pandemic procedures must not become the new norm. But my colleagues, nothing before us proves illegality anywhere near the massive scale, the massive scale that would have tipped the entire election. Nor can public doubt alone justify a radical break when the doubt itself was incited without any evidence. The Constitution gives us here in Congress a limited role. We cannot simply declare ourselves a national board of elections on steroids. The voters, the courts, and the states have all spoken. They've all spoken. If we overrule them, it would damage our republic forever.
1: Tamar, first of all, we know that Joe Biden, at the end of all this, will be declared the winner of the president. He will take office on January 20th. But you've dealt with McConnell. You've covered McConnell. When you hear... Those strong words, strong words, coming from him, especially after he has been so solicitous of President Trump for four plus years. What are your thoughts?
2: I mean, this might be the strongest, one of the strongest, you know, statements I've ever heard from from McConnell, especially when it comes to rebuking someone like Trump, who, for the most part, McConnell was working hand in glove with over the last four years, um, and and remember, even after the election you know McConnell wouldn't call and congratulate Joe Biden a personal friend of his for for decades out of um you know regard for Trump and so i think this says a lot i think it says that he's over it and that you know he intends to kind of turn turn the page once uh, january 20th rolls along but um, it also shows the, the scope of the problems he has on his hands going forward, this rebellion within the Senate GOP where he has something like 12 or 13 members, something like a quarter of his caucus that are, are defying his will to, to challenge these results. And and he's done a good job of keeping his caucus unified over the last 10 years or so. Um, so, so maybe it's going to be harder for him to do his job going forward.
1: I would think so, Riley.
3: I would just add briefly that this is indicative of the path going forward. This is not going to be over when Joe Biden takes office. And we know that from Trump's comments I'm sure he made during his speech in Washington, D.C. today and his rally in Dalton. He said he was going to be back campaigning against the Georgia governor when he's up for re-election and he's likely going to be primary. He is going to be involved in politics and we're still going to have loyalists in the Senate. Standing up for him, and it's just—it's
1: indicative of this is a long battle ahead. So, um, Amy, we have Georgia um, House members and one senator, mm-hmm. Kelly Leffler, all agreeing that there should be protests to uh, uh, the certification of votes in some mm-hmm. states. By the way, Georgia will be one of the states that will get an objection. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, first, let's mention that Representative Austin Scott of Tifton is on the other side of this. He joined with a number of lawmakers to submit a letter uh, that essentially says to unconstitutionally insert Congress into the center of the presidential election process would amount to stealing power from the people and the states. That's Austin Scott. Now, on the other hand, uh, we have four members of the Georgia delegation in the House, Jody Heiss of Greensboro – Uh, Rick Allen of Evans, Marjorie Taylor Greene, newly in office from the 14th District, and Andrew Clyde of Athens. All right, so I put this to you, Amy. Brant, here are the first things that Representative Clyde and Representative Greene are taking on in their official capacities now that they are members of Congress. And one of the first things they are essentially doing is saying to the people of Georgia, oh, oh, we don't think— Your vote should count. We think there should be a challenge to whether you legitimately elected Joe Biden. Oh, by the way, I wonder if their uh, elections were legitimate since they were uh, running at the same time. I find that a staggering way to begin your tenure in the U.S. House.
0: I think that's a terribly good point. And we actually saw that objection being raised by one of their Republican counterparts who raised an objection actually to seating any of the members who uh, in the house who had already signed on suggesting um, that different um, states of electors should be thrown out because the, obviously they were all elected on the same ballot using all of the same procedures. And if in fact, The presidential race has flaws that are large enough to suggest that they should be thrown out. It would also suggest the same for those who were elected to Congress as well. And I think it also shows sort of the concerns that are going on here, right? It is one thing, um, as we have seen in in years past, where admittedly there have been objections raised for knowingly uh, symbolic reasons to bring attention to issues. This is different in kind, right? They are suggesting that this is not, in fact, meant to be symbolic, but that they, in fact, want to not certify the votes. They are suggesting they want to do enough such that they can change the outcome of the election. And I think that that's where the difference is, right? We either believe that we are going to follow uh, the rules and procedures that are set out, um, we either believe in sort of the 10th Amendment and the idea that the states are in charge of the issues that in ter- determining these their own internal procedures and also that if they certify their procedures that they're going to be relied upon, um, or we don't. More broadly, um, we like to say that we are a nation of laws, right? A nation of laws, not of men, It's times like this where we're reminded that laws require people to in fact follow them and enforce them and respect them, that it requires us to want to adhere to the values that we see. And this is in fact unprecedented in the sense that in all accounts, this was one of the best conducted elections that has taken place in a very long time, right? Particularly in the state of Georgia. And so that makes sort of the Um, continuing allegations of broad malfeasance harder to stomach, especially in Georgia, where we've seen the votes now be counted right in the November election three different times all publicly, and they reaffirmed what the results were.
1: All right, uh, Tamar, uh, let me uh, just give you some uh, uh, there's another development. There is a further escalation. Um, uh, Our good friend and your colleague, Tia Mitchell, your Washington correspondent, is at the Capitol. She just tweeted that members of Congress are now putting on gas masks. So are members of the media. Tear gas has been dispensed in the rotunda tomorrow. In the rotunda of the United States Capitol. This is oh my god heartbreaking and terrifying.
2: Oh my god! Yeah, that is terrifying. Um, you know that's the. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't even have words right now. There's so much going through my head. I know that right now the chambers are are kind of locked. you know, House and Senate members are locked in their respective chambers along with the media. But until all of this gets dispersed, they're not going to be able to continue with this counting of the uh the certification of the electoral college votes because eventually the Senate is going to have to cross through the rotunda into the house. so protesters are getting what they want they're they're pausing um, the certification of these results, and it's um terrifying what
1: is happening. You know, Fred, here's one of the things that I'm thinking about all of a sudden in terms of this. Um, you know, President Trump cares more about how he's, con- his his reputation, his image is the most important thing uh, he clings to, is, is that he is thought of as a strong, uh, successful business leader. You know, he certainly wants to be remembered as a president who uh, 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 was almost as great as Abraham Lincoln, if not greater. Does he have any conception of what this event today, what his behavior in the past weeks beyond whatever came before, is going to mean in terms of how historians view him?
4: Yeah, I mean, I've... Have gotten out of the business of trying to understand uh, what he knows or doesn't know or what he is thinking. Um, but uh, objectively, this certainly um, will tarnish uh, an already uh, badly tarnished <clears throat> legacy. Uh, I will say that he has uh, now tweeted that he uh, condemns the, uh, or not condemns, that's too strong, but that he wants people to stay peaceful um, uh, and to respect the Capitol Police. Um, you know, I'll, I'll just say that, you know, kind of in watching this and in thinking about today and kind of how to tie all this together, and how to find something hopeful to say, um, I'm thinking about John Lewis. Uh, and mm. uh, I'm, uh, I'm thinking about, you know, if, as we try to find our way out of this, um, we're going to have to learn to, uh, to love one another. Uh, and we're going to have to learn how to, uh, to have disagreements that sometimes might be fierce and sometimes might go to really the heart of, of our values and the way we see the world. Um, but we're going to have to see each other as human beings who are operating from a place uh, of uh, good faith. Um, and, you know, last night, the voters of Georgia, they selected uh, John Lewis, his former pastor, uh, and uh, he selected his former intern, uh, and uh, his legacy uh, will live on. Um, and uh, and so I just kind of want to, uh, since I don't have the words, I want to
1: I want to call on his memory, um, because maybe that can show us something of a way. I appreciate that, Fred. Tomorrow weigh in on this.
2: Now that I've had a second to collect my thoughts a little bit, I want to talk about the symbolism of the rotunda in the Capitol and why this is so Mm. shocking to me. This room is a monument to American exceptionalism. Uh, On the dome of the rotunda is a painting of George Washington ascending to heaven, and he's sitting there with the angels. And there's, there's beautiful murals everywhere of key moments in American history. There are statues from every state, uh, representing the the best of the best. And in the next room over, there's a statue of Rosa Parks. And you know, Georgia has a statue of the uh, Alexander Stevens, the former uh, vice presidency, or sorry Vice president of the Confederacy. But there's talk that Georgia will replace that with John Lewis in the months to come. And this is so shocking to me that that America, the home of the peace, peaceful protest and kind of so emblematic of how exceptional we are as a nation. We could devolve into this in that room of all places in Washington.
1: You, you know, Tamara, you'll understand what I'm about to say. I think of the rotunda, too, in, in various ways, uh, in terms of my own experience. One of them is that I uh, there was a photographer, a cameraman, uh, who worked for Cox uh, back when I was at Channel 2 News and used to spend much of my time in Washington, who actually manned the camera That was at the very pinnacle of the rotunda that had the shot down to the casket of John F. Kennedy. And to that, to the day that he talked about that with me, years and years later, he still remembers that as one of the most vivid um, and important memories of his time in Washington. I think about the rotunda on the nights of State of the Union addresses, when uh, the media all gathers on either side of the rotunda, and there's a rope... Line so that uh, members of the Supreme Court, the senators themselves, the, pre- the vice president, not the president, the vice president, all walk through and um, march through with great dignity, uh, sh- shaking hands, saying hello to reporters, whoever else is there. It, it, I have some, art, you brought back some memories for me of what, what an extraordinary place that really is. And to think of tear gas being dispersed there is really, really sad.
2: To me, it's a room that that usually is... People are kind of quiet in it. You walk in and the scale of it is so dramatic and there's so much to take in that it's really breathtaking. And even little kids walk in and it's like, oh my gosh, I've never been in a room (laughs) like this. And the fact that now it's devolved into such an ugly scene is heartbreaking.
1: Yeah. Riley?
3: You know, I had this in my notes to talk about when we went over the Senate races and the Raphael Warnock's win, but I think we're really seeing... These two parallel histories playing out that are also extremely intertwined. If there was any moment for Georgia to elect the first black senator, Pastor Ebenezer Baptist Church, Martin Luther King's church, John Lewis's church, it would be now.
1: Uh, Thank you for that. Um, I appreciate all of these comments. Uh, I I know this is not what we expected to be talking about, but I think it's true that this right now is an important moment and that it's unfolding as we're on the air. Let's do this. Let's take our final break, and we'll be back with more on Political Rewind. Fred Smith, I know that you uh, tweeted this morning, uh, Amelia Brock pointed out to me that you tweeted about the John Lewis relationship to Raphael Warnock and to John Assoff, and then it went viral. You were, uh, y- your your tweet went far and wide, and you said you're looking for some positive uh, uh, news, some positive developments in the midst of what's turning out to be a very difficult afternoon. Well, here's, here's an example. Let's listen to just a little bit of what Raphael Warnock said last night when he was on the verge of having the election called in his favor.
5: A son of my late father, who was a pastor, a veteran, and a small businessman. And my mother, who as a teenager growing up in Waycross, Georgia, used to pick somebody else's cotton. But the other day, because this is America, the 82 year old hands that used to pick somebody else's cotton went to the polls and picked her youngest son to be a United States Senator. So I come before you tonight as a man who knows that the improbable journey that led me to this place in this historic moment in America could only happen here.
1: Fred, you come out of a family, father, uh, you come out of a tradition deeply, deeply embedded in civil and human rights, and so to hear Raphael Warnock say those words, I would think is about as positive a message as you could get on a difficult afternoon.
4: That's absolutely right. Um, you know, when I heard him say it, <laughs> I, I cried in tears of joy, and uh, they give me additional uh, comfort now. Um, and it it is it is a uniquely American story. His father. Uh, Reverend Warnock's father fought in World War II, um, and you know, came home to a country where, at the time, uh, there were separate water fountains and separate schools, and uh, black people couldn't vote in meaningful numbers until 1965. Uh, and uh, and in that same country, right, in that very same country, uh, Georgia just elected uh, its first black senator, and that is that is a that is a uniquely and powerful American story, and uh, a reminder that even in dark days. Uh, joy cometh in the morning. <laughs> Amy,
0: um, I love how Fred echoed that sentiment. That of course, Reiko Warnock also sent out um, this morning, and I think it's an important point. I mean, we are seeing this sort of very stark counterpoint right now that Georgia has elected the first uh, Black senator ever, the first Jewish senator ever, um, in from our state. Um, And there are people storming the U.S. Capitol carrying Confederate flags. And so it really kind of puts on stark display what are the sort of two different visions that at least some groups are um, holding on to here and how it is that we will um, respond to this. And so I am I I want to remain that optimism that storming of the Capitol in this type of reaction is not who we are, that everyone is going to um, remain safe. But I'm, I'm scared right now, because I don't know what to do with this. I don't know what to do with a president who appears to be encouraging this type of behavior, regardless of what side you're on. And it's scary. Um, and so I'm just very much hoping that everybody's okay.
1: Sa- Sam, um, you just sent me a text about an escalation that's taken place. Be- if I'm, I'm glad to report it. Except, what's the source? All right, then, then we won't. There, all right, uh, it, there, there are some rumors that the situation may have escalated in the Capitol, but I, I really don't want to report it until we know for certain because uh, it's even more alarming. Um, I apologize. I, 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 the only way I can do this is on, on the air with Sam. Uh, but I apologize. I'm not trying to. Uh, uh, Tease you in some way. Um, All right, let's go back. Uh, Oh, by the way, at as soon as we're off the air at three o'clock, NPR is going to pick up with special coverage of exactly what is happening in real time at the U.S. Capitol uh, right now, and uh, so you'll want to stay tuned. I'm sure uh, for that. But but look, let's go back to where we started today. Uh, Thinking about the fact, Riley, the state of Georgia, now appears to be on the verge of sending two Democratic uh, senators to uh, Washington. And um, uh, we know that uh, Warnock has already been declared the winner. Ossoff is on the verge of being declared uh, the winner. And um, it's hard to... You know, it's a huge story for Georgia, where for years Democrats have been saying they're on the verge of taking uh, a a leadership role here. Um, But we become one of the most important stories in the country because the Senate will now be majority Democratic.
3: You're absolutely right. You know, everyone in Georgia has been saying we've seen this coming. Uh, we've seen it coming for years and years and years of mobilization efforts, especially in and, and new voters, minority communities. Like I mentioned earlier, the, the power of the black vote that really hasn't been recognized up until now, at the, the height that it should have been. Um, but sending to Democrats, it really goes to the message that they've been campaigning on this entire time. You know, this quote unquote new Georgia, and new South. Um, and there is a lot of Georgia, you know, that it, it will remain the same. Um, it's pretty purple still. Um, we can see that with our Republicans won a lot in our state house. They took a majority of seats in our state house. But now Georgia has the opportunity to shape Biden's upcoming presidential administration and the policies that are going to be pushed forward. And it's, it's pretty crazy to think about.
1: Yeah, Amy, it is not as if we're not going to still have gridlock. We are going to have gridlock in, in some cases. Um, it is not as if uh, Biden's going to get his way on everything. Uh, but but uh, the two Democrats from Georgia will certainly enable him to perhaps to pursue a more aggressive agenda um, uh, and give him some room uh, to uh, maneuver. And, and um, with the very little time we have remaining, just weigh in on that very quickly.
0: Um, so two major things that this means will be much easier for Biden. Number one, getting all of his nominees to various executive positions in the cabinet confirmed, as well as getting judicial nominees confirmed. Um, what is going to be a bit more difficult, of course, are policy debates because the filibuster still exists. But that's on the table as well. But nomination confirmations are sort of a huge issue, and that will be now smoothed along.
1: Um tomorrow we are virtually out of time but we do now have some confirmation of what I was a little nervous about talking about apparently uh, there are um shots have been fired in the uh, house chamber uh, NPR is gonna have more to say about this in the next few minutes of course as they come on with their special reporting uh, but that's a difficult way to end our show today N- nevertheless we have to stop here Tamar Hallerman, Riley bunch Fred Smith Amy Sagerwald, I do appreciate on a very difficult day that you all found some way to say at least some things uh, that give us hope and some inspiration. Thank you for being here. Let's go to NPR. In the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask, and let's hope for a better future.